Well, hello, church. It is good to be with you again. Today, we are going to be looking at the book of James. With it, we close our non-Pauline books of the New Testament. We will have covered all of the books in the New Testament that were not written by Paul. James, much like the letter of 1 John, which we looked at last week, is a short book, only five chapters. And so, today, we're going to work our way through the whole thing. Uh, we certainly will not read the whole thing, but pick out the, the key themes and points that, that James is making in this letter. Before we can do that, however, we do need to talk a little bit about who James is and what the context uh, in which he was working and teaching and leading was. I think you'll see once we have sketched that and put him in his historical place, this letter makes a lot of sense. By the time we're done, I think you'll see why many people think James is a really important letter. Uh, I think especially for this time and place that we live in, uh, it, it is crucial to understand what James is saying so that we can understand our role as the church. Um, but like I said, that will become, I think, apparent as we move through this today. So who is James? James is the brother of Jesus. Um, he was known as James the Just. We have the story of Jesus' mother and brothers coming to try to take Jesus home. They think he's sort of has overstepped his bounds and is, they seem to be embarrassed by him, so they've come to gather him. Um, but that picture into that family dynamic tells us that the brothers, James and, and the others, uh, d didn't buy into this idea that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't until after his death and resurrection and ascension that their eyes were opened and they understood who he was. But James, as the brother, becomes, we know, the, the head of the Jerusalem church. And by virtue of being the head of the Jerusalem church, he's the head of the church. The church in Jerusalem was the mother church. Um, it is the church that we see Paul going and, and raising funds for to support. It was sort of the epicenter of early Christianity. That church in Jerusalem, as we have talked about before, is almost entirely Jewish. It is actually a sect of Judaism. So they consider themselves still Jewish, but they consider Jesus to have been the Messiah. So the story of Israel has come into fulfillment, and but they remain part of Judaism. If you recall our discussion months ago, we took a Sunday and went through sort of the long history of the Israelite people through the different nations that had conquered them, through their exile, and then ultimately through the period of the destruction, which happens in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. Rome, of course, in the wake of the Jewish uprising, comes in swiftly and quickly puts it down. Uh, kills hundreds of thousands of Jews, we're told, sends the remaining of them into dispersion, scattering throughout the region. The church, of course, being part of that, so the Jewish church scatters. James, as a church leader, is working, teaching, writing prior to that destruction. So it's in that 50 to 60 AD period which we put James. And so James, as he's leading the church during this time, is having to do that in the midst of all of the turmoil that's happening. You have the various sects of Judaism that are rising up. They're fighting amongst each other for support. Uh, of course, we know the Sadducees and sort of the ruling class, the Herods and their successors are making compromises with Rome in order to stay in power. They are oppressing the, the lower classes. And so there's a lot of class dynamic hatred going on. We've talked in the past about the Sicarii, the dagger men. They are the armed revolutionaries. It is their ideology that comes to the forefront in the mid-60s that leads to the revolt in which Rome will come put that down. But as James is leading the church, 
all of that turmoil, all that chaos, all of that infighting and uh, revolts that are happening against Rome, the uprisings that happen around the area, all of that is happening in the background. And it's in that context in which James is teaching and the content of this letter is developed. We should note that the church as it existed at this point was primarily made up of those in the lower class. To the extent that there were any of the priesthood or the religious leaders that were part of the church, they were definitely the lower echelon. And so, as this dynamic comes out and starts to, to play in the church, the church is primarily the poor and the oppressed. They're the ones who would find affinity for the zealots, the violent revolutionaries. They're the ones that want to lash out against the elite, those that have made compromises with Rome, who have oppressed the lower classes in order to gain wealth and power for themselves. In some cases, that lower class has been forced into slavery by their own people. Um, we've talked before about the tax collectors and the extortion that happens there. So there was a lot of ill feeling and even hatred on the part of the lower class towards this upper class. And James is trying to lead a church that's made up of primarily those people. There were, of course, some wealthy people in the church. When James speaks of the rich, when the other New Testament writers and even Jesus himself addresses the rich, they are almost always speaking of this elite class that has exploited the lower class, um, the, the, those that have made those compromises and turned on their own nation. So James's task is to lead this poor church, this group of lower class, exploited, oppressed believers in the Messiah through this time in a way that is representative of Jesus. And that, as you can imagine, causes all sorts of problems that needed to be addressed. And it is in this letter where we see James's teachings coming through and we get a picture into what was going on and we see what James taught as the way forward in light of who Jesus was. We also know that during this time, James becomes popular. So he, he identifies with the poor very, very much. He identifies with that lower class and he becomes a bit of a prophet. He stands in that prophetic tradition, speaking against that oppressive upper class. Um, and as he does that, he becomes a voice for those people and he becomes a lightning rod for the attention of the religious leaders. And in about 62 AD, we think, it was, some people date it to 62, some to 69, but I think it's most likely 62. The high priest has a window. What has happened is that the procurator, the Roman authority in, in the region dies. And there's this period between the moment when he dies and when the next procurator can arrive. And as a result, there's a power vacuum. It was in this period that the high priest Ananus II called together the Sanhedrin, the same judicial body that tries Jesus, and brings before them James and a number of the others of the that are members of the prophetic movement that is speaking out against the injustices that have been going on. He convicts them and they put them to death. It is because we know that he was put to death sometime in the 60s prior to the destruction of the temple. We know that he was working in this environment, this, this socioeconomic time of complete and utter turmoil and chaos. We're going to turn now to the letter of James, and I would recommend you have at least your Bible and a pencil in front of you, uh, perhaps maybe even a notebook. If you don't have one, just push pause, go grab one, and come back. Remember, the whole purpose of this series is to give you a high-level overview of the text so that when you come back and you read it verse by verse, you understand the context and the overall arc of the story, in this case, the letter, um, so that you can understand what's going on. James, unlike some of the other New Testament writers, Paul and his letters, or even the gospel writers, 
does not flow logically from one scene into the next. It's not a sequence of thought. James has a number of different ideas which get compiled together and put put into this letter. And so there are moments in which the letter seems to very abruptly shift. And so we're going to have to talk about where those moments are and what kind of where the breaks in the letter are so we can follow the thought process that happens here. As the letter opens, we get James's message for the church, for the lowly, for the poor. So this is his church. This is the this is the church that he leads in Jerusalem. We said earlier that they are largely comprised of this lower class that is finding themselves oppressed put down, exploited, taken advantage of, kept down um, because the ruling elite want to maintain that power for themselves and they're using the power of Rome, who's the the big boss in the area, in order to do all of that. And so James opens up with an exhortation to them and he says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that this testing of your faith produces endurance and let that endurance have its full effects that you may be mature and complete lacking in nothing. It's easy to approach James's letter and think about things like trials, for example, here, and think about them in general terms. It's, it's why we took the time to really talk about the context and, and place James and his teaching and his church and his hearers in that, that period, that the period of turmoil inside of Jerusalem, because there is a particular trial and there, there are particular things that they are going through and that has to do with socioeconomic injustice and oppression. And so when he's talking about those trials, we know that that's, that's the thing that he's talking about. And so he opens up his letter by encouraging his church to suffer through the trials that they face. It's the injustice that they're enduring, God will use in order to bring about a full and complete faith. He'll talk about a perfection. And for James, perfection is completeness. It's not lack of error, but rather being complete in Jesus, complete in God. In fact, as we go into the next verse, it says, if any of you is lacking wisdom, ask God. Wisdom for James, James uses it in its Old Testament context. Wisdom is the ability, the God-given ability to know how to act rightly in a particular situation. And so wisdom in this context for James is the God-given ability to endure that trial and to know how to act appropriately and in, in step with the teachings of Jesus as the Christian church in the context in which they, they face these trials. He then goes into a short discussion about poverty and how those in poverty ought to rejoice in their estate and reminds them that those who have riches and are storing up riches, ultimately that money will fail them. And it's, it very much echoes the teachings of Jesus. Then towards the middle of that first chapter, he launches into this discussion about trials and temptations. Much in the same way as the trials that he's talking about have a specific context, so do the temptations. And here we need to remind ourselves about the socioeconomic reality, the political unrest, the powder keg that was Jerusalem during this period leading up to the destruction of the temple. And the temptation they faced was to take up violence. So time and time again, there were leaders rising up who were talking about revolt and particularly an armed revolt. And so the temptation that the church found itself in was rather than to be peaceful and to rejoice in their suffering as James has just encouraged them to do, to instead take up arms and revolt against those who oppress them. And so the temptation here is very much a violent temptation. It's why later in the letter, he's gonna talk about murder. He's really actually talking about murder because that's what these people did. Again, think about the dagger men, the sicari. These were the, the guys who 
carried daggers under their cloaks through the marketplaces. And when they found tax collectors or those who were abusing and taking advantage of the Jewish people for their own their own gain, who were traitors, they would literally stab them in the middle of the streets and kill them. So this was a very real, tangible temptation. It was an option for the poor to take up. It was a way for them to try to level the playing field and bring about justice for themselves. And James in this letter is addressing it directly. And so he's talking here about that temptation, that very particular temptation to lash out in anger and in fact violence and talking, trying to talk them down. And so he talks about trials as though trials come, of course. And then he makes it clear that the temptation, our, our desire, our human desire to lash out violently is in fact a result of our sin. And he, and he makes very clear that it is not God that tempts us. It is in fact our own evil desires, our, our baser, lesser motivations that would lead us into that. And he's trying to remind his church of that and steer them away from that to lead a peaceful life that rejoices in the midst of suffering rather than one that is likely to take a dagger and go, on the, go into the streets rather than the one rather than one that is likely to take up a dagger and go into the streets and do something terrible. In the last section of the first chapter, James is talking about being a doer and not just a hearer of the word. And he reminds them of the message that they have heard. And that message, of course, is the message of Jesus. And he's reminding them that they must act like Jesus. They must internalize the person of Jesus, the message of Jesus, um, the things that he had taught. And as a result, of course, they can't take up a violent response. They must be like Jesus. They must be people of peace. As we move into what we know as the second chapter, James begins discussing how they are treating people, particularly the differences in the way they act towards the rich and the poor. And there's sort of a deep irony in what he's talking about. And that is that the church, the poor people, when they go into the public and when they interact with poor, poor people and rich people, they are showing deference and respect to the rich people. It is, it is the rich, the elite, who are oppressing them, the they're putting them in a jail. They're taking advantage of them. They're the ones keeping them in the state that they are poor. But when the church interacts with them, they show them all the respect. And in fact, they neglect the poor in favor of sucking up to the rich. And so there's this terrible irony in that they are playing the game and looking to almost idolizing the rich who are keeping them in the poor poor state. And James encourages them to live by the law of liberty. And for James, the law of liberty is the law of love, the great commandment to love God, to love other people. It is that law. It's the law of mercy. It is the law of liberty because in loving other people that way, we break down those barriers between the rich and the poor, the oppressor and the oppressed. We break down and eradicate injustice and thereby bring about freedom or liberty. And so James can talk about the law of love as being the law of liberty. And it is in this discussion in which James is talking about how the church treats the poor and the rich differently, in which he talks about what we know famously, his discussion about faith and works, which dovetails so well with what we saw in First Peter about loving other people. And this is the moment when James says that faith without works is dead. And he uses a number of examples and has this imaginary dialogue in which he's debating whether or not faith without works is good. Is it good enough just to claim faith, to say you're a faithful person and not do anything about it? To which he responds and concludes that absolutely not, that faith without works is dead. It's useless that if your faith does not bring about and compel works, if you are not compelled to love other people, 
live in the law of liberty, well, then your faith is useless. In discussing this section of James, uh, Scott McKnight says this. He says, they say things, they be in the church, that sound pious, but they do nothing. The lack of daily food on the part of the poor is met by a fierce refusal to respond to the needs requisite to the body. The description here is tragic. The Messianic community is connected to the Messiah who became poor in order to make others rich and who taught in word and deed to show mercy to those in need. The community is connected to the scriptures of Israel, which from beginning to end advocate mercy and compassion for those in need. And yet the community is filled with poor who know the underside of oppression. Yet, and this is what perplexes James into strong words, this group of those who say they have faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the glorious one who became poor, does nothing for those who make their needs obvious. I think he says it very well and, and hearing that, makes perfect sense of what James has to say. And James's concern here is that the church, those who claim to be the inheritors of Jesus, they claim to follow the Messiah, they claim to live the life, to be the people of Jesus the Christ, the one who came to be poor, to enter into a lowly estate on our behalf, they refuse to do that. They refuse to help those who are in so much need. Instead, they want to play the games of the rich and make nice with them. And so James wants to, again, draw to his church's attention the importance of being the hands and feet of Jesus, the importance of acting in real, tangible ways to care for those who are in need. As we get into chapter three, we get to one of those abrupt changes, which I mentioned earlier, and we move out of a discussion that's directed at the church in general into a discussion that's directed particularly at the teachers of the church. And he says that not many people should be teachers, that it takes a particular sort of person. And one of the things that he talks about here is it takes a person who can tame their tongue, who is wise in the way they speak. And he talks about how this, the speech, particularly here, it's the speech of the leader, the speech of the teacher, the prominent community leader that is like a fire that can set a forest ablaze or a rudder who can move a whole ship. And so it is, in his analogy, it is the tongue of the leader that can direct the entire ship of the church. And he says that those who are teaching need to be aware of this. They need to be wise in the way they use their words and they need to not be selfish. As he gets done with those analogies about the tongue, he begins to talk about wisdom. And here again, he's still addressing the teachers of the church and talking about how they need to be wise. And remember that wisdom here is in its Old Testament context. Wisdom is the gift of God, the knowledge of how to act in a particular given situation. And that situation which we have already discussed is this tumultuous period in which there's revolution on the brink, everyone's on pins and needles, violence will break out any moment. And so it takes a wise and steady teacher and wise godly words to be spoken in the midst of all that in order to keep the powder keg from going off. As the conversation continues directed at the teachers into chapter four, he starts going on about how the conflicts and disputes that have come up, he says, those, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? It's important to know that the word conflict is not simply just an argument. That word in Greek means literal warring. So this is literal fighting. Think again, this is the, the dagger men, the, the bickering, the fighting, the actual violence against one another that has, is arising in and around the church. And, and James is asking, where's that coming from? And, and he lays it all at the feet of these unwise teachers who he says have been seeking their own selfish desires. He says, you want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. 
that right there speaks directly to the context. Here we have a poor, oppressed, low, lower social status church that looks at the elite and they say, we should have that. And the immediate and easy answer to that is to take up arms and go to, go to war, to literally murder people. And that's what he says. He says, you don't have what you want. You see that they have it. And so you go out in the street and murder people. This is happening. This is a direct reference to what is going on in the time and place when James is teaching. It says, so you commit murder and you covet something and you cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. And so here he's, this again, this is directed at the teachers. And so he's telling the teachers of the church, you've got to get your act together. We need to speak and act better. We, as the leaders of the people of God, we must be wise in the way that we counsel the church to act in the midst of all that is going on. We have to find the peaceful way. As he draws his instructions to teachers to a close here in 4.7, he gives a list of imperatives. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The imperatives we have listed here that he's giving to his teachers, to the leaders in the church, are to submit to resist the devil, to draw near God, to cleanse their hands, purify their hearts. All of that sounds good and well. This is a call to repentance. This echoes, of course, just about every other instruction in the New Testament. What gets perhaps a little more difficult is that he calls them to lament. He calls them to mourn, to weep. He says, let your laughter turn into mourning, and he tells him to humble themselves. His call to the teachers of the church, to the leaders of the church, is to reject their selfish ambitions, to set aside their need to be friends of the elite, to be friends of the upper class. Instead, he calls them to identify with the poor, with the church, with those they've been called to lead. The practice of lament has a long tradition in the people of God. Lamenting is not just being sad, not just mourning, which of course he goes on to encourage them to do. Lamenting is actually entering into the state alongside with the poor, to become a poor. This is obviously the model that Jesus gives us, to live alongside those who are being oppressed, in this case, the poor. To lament is to enter in and to recognize the reality of what's going on and to cry out to God as a result of it. And so, in the context in which James is working, that requires a teacher to become poor along with his church, to realize the injustice and the oppression that has caused that. And as they sit here in the 50s and 60s, prior to the destruction of the temple, but certainly feeling that that is coming, Jesus, of course, has foretold the destruction of the temple, so they perhaps have some idea that something's coming. But even in the air, living in that time, you know that this doesn't end well, that the division and the disparity between the rich and the poor is getting wider and wider. The rich are taking more and more advantage of the poor. At some point, this powder keg will go off. And to lament in that time and place would be to enter into that reality, to live in the midst of that, and to cry out to God knowing that this doesn't end well asking for God to come into the midst of that, to bring his peace in the midst of that, to bring his justice into the midst of that, 
knowing that it's going to go bad in all likelihood. That is, of course, not something that the leaders of the church, the teachers at that time, would want to hear. It is not something that probably teachers at any time want to hear, but it is the hard truth which James, as the leader of the Jerusalem church, the mother church, must give to his leaders, must give to his disciples, the rest of his church, in the midst of that chaos, in order that they can find the path of Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of entering into the poor estate and lamenting along with the oppressed. He draws his instructions to the teachers to a close by telling them not to judge one another, not to lash out against one another. This discussion of judging, again, is directed towards the teachers of the church. That's not to say that this whole section cannot be extrapolated from and applied to all of Christians, but this is one that James has framed as being instructive for the teachers, the leaders of the church. On the heels of that discussion, he turns to address the merchants and the elite ruling class who oppress the poor. And he says, and this, this echoes very much the Old Testament prophets and Jesus, when he says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. There we hear directly words that echo Jesus. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you. And it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Here is the teaching that likely got James killed. It is James standing in the gap in between the poor, which are his church, the oppressed, those who are on the raw end, the short end of the stick, that suffer from injustice. He spent his letter exhorting them to peace, trying to quell their temptation to violence, reminding them that the way of Jesus is a way of peace and love, not of the dagger. And then in the same breath, he turns to those who are rich, those who would oppress them and tells them, you're in trouble. The God, the judge, the one who will set things right is coming. In fact, in the next section, he reminds the church, he turns back to the church, those who are oppressed and tells them to be patient, that that the Lord is at the doorway, that judgment is coming. And as he talks about judgment here, there's no indication here that what he's talking about is the day of the Lord, the final judgment, but rather there is a judgment coming and it's coming quickly. And so this message to the high priest, to the ruling class, the Herods, to those who would be landowners, those who are robbing from their workers by not paying them, those who are exploiting the poor for their own benefit out of selfish desires. His message is, God's coming for you. The scales will be tipped back right. You will not get away with your evil deeds for much longer. And you can see, of course, why that would be upsetting. Here is James who has rose to prominence in Jerusalem, not only in the church, but amongst the whole sort of nationalist movement. James becomes a voice um, a voice for justice, a voice for the poor, a voice, as we have seen, against the exploitation by the rich of the poor. 
And and that is why when the high priest has the opportunity, he drags James and the other prophetic voices of the day in front of the Sanhedrin and stones them. The letter of James must be understood within its context. It must be understood and wrestled with in light of the turmoil, the political unrest, the socioeconomic injustices that were going on, the desire of those who are oppressed to lash out violently, to take justice into their own hands, to fight against the man, as it were, a message that speaks directly to those who are oppressing the poor, calling them out, telling them that God's judgment is at the door, literally, it is, it is coming. And when we put it in that context, when we understand that message of James in that time and place, I think we can immediately see how this applies to us today. This problem of injustice, this is not a new problem for James. This is not something that has not existed before. This is a reality that God's people have been struggling with and finding themselves in the midst of over and over and over again. The Old Testament prophets, one of their primary messages was the same thing James is saying now. Again and again, they come to the people of Israel and say, you are not treating people with justice. You are not loving others. You are not doing the things that God would have you do. The message that the prophets deliver as the words of God to the people of Israel over and over again are a message that says God, God doesn't care. God says, I don't care about your sacrifices. I, I really don't care about the fatted calf or the lamb or the, or the money or the harvest. What I care about is how you treat people. What I care about is you living just and right and loving lives. You neglect the widows and the orphans. You neglect the least of these. And as a result of that, I will judge you. The socioeconomic realities that existed during the prophetic days of the Old Testament were the same that were, that were going on here. It was the reality that the rich are taking advantage of the poor, enslaving them, whether actual slavery or through financial means. James, we didn't even talk about, tells the churches that they're making nice, they're showing partiality towards the rich people who drag them in front of the judges and put them in jail. The elite, the oppressors were using the legal systems, the economic systems in order to keep the people down. If someone tried to raise up like James did, they would use the legal system in order to crush them, to imprison them, to enslave them, in the case of James and the prophets, to kill them. This story of the rich, the greedy, the power hungry, rising to positions of power in which they can bring about their selfish desires at the expense of other people is a story that repeats itself over and over and over and over again. And why this book is so important and why we need to listen to this and wrestle with it in its context is that we find ourselves in the midst of this story again today. We find ourselves in a situation where we have people who are crying out, who are saying, we need help. As a church, as the people of God, we need to determine and decide how we are going to respond. We need to hear James's words that were spoken and written in a time and place that is not so unlike ours. Given what we've seen over the last year, the protests and the violence, perhaps we're not that far off. We must become like James. As a church, we must stand in the gap. 
We must hear the cries of the needy, the poor, the hungry, the widows, the orphans. We must not ignore them. We can't be, as McKnight said in his analysis, we, we can't live in this horrible, sad irony in which we claim the Savior, we claim to follow a Jesus who entered into the world as the poor, alongside the poor, to make them strong, to make them rich, and turn a blind eye, a deaf ear, when those who are poor, when those who are in need, reach out. Nor can we turn a blind eye and stay silent when we see oppression, when we see injustice. We must recognize and call it out. We must stand up and say, this is not right. People are being abused, underpaid, neglected, left out. Whatever the case may be, when we see it, we must be the people. We are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We are called to be the messengers. We are called to be the Jameses that say, this is not right. And whenever the opportunity presents itself, we must be the ones that step in and attempt to fix it. We cannot be people who just put our heads in the sand and ignore the realities of the world. The world is broken. Our systems are broken. We are put through trials and we are often tempted, as James tells us, by our lesser inclinations, our sinful desires. Sinful desires and selfish inclinations, unwise words lead to ruin. It leads to chaos. It leads to destruction. In the case of Jerusalem, it was giving in to those inclinations that led to revolt, that led to utter destruction. I don't pretend to be any sort of prophet that knows the future, but what I do know is that the words of God time and time again to his people, who we are, who we claim to be, is that if we fail to take up the side of the poor, of the orphan, of the widow, if we fail to work for justice, if we fail to work to make things right, to make things better, to improve the life of those around us who are in need, then we fail in our love for Jesus and in our calling. Last week, I challenged you to do one thing every day to make someone else feel loved. Today, I want to challenge you this week to look around and open your eyes to those who are in need. The problems that we face as a community, as a society, as a country, as a world are large, but they are not insurmountable. And the way that they will be addressed is by each of us doing our part. So today, I hope that we all take the words and instructions of James to heart, that we be wise, that we accept the prompting and the wisdom, the spirit from God that teaches us, that tells us how to live in this world. And so this week, open yourself up to that wisdom. Ask for that wisdom. James tells us if we lack it, we ask for it and he will grant it to us. Ask God to open our eyes, to open your eyes this week to those who need your help. And wherever you see this week a need, I encourage you to find a way to meet that. Perhaps you can do it personally. Perhaps you need to get a group of people together make some phone calls. Let us stand together as a church this week and say we are the followers of Jesus. We are the ones who will take up the cause of the widow, the orphan, and the poor. We are the ones who will live out 
the law of liberty. We are the ones who will love our neighbor. We are the ones who have been called to make a better world. And we do so in the name and the power of Jesus our Lord. Amen.